What would you do if you could do anything? Welcome back to The Purpose Effect. I'm Elena. The idea is that one day we hope to solve the mistrust that now exists in the carbon trading markets. You need to be able to know that, let's say if you buy a carbon offset from this project today, you, when you retire it, it's not going to be retired again by someone else on another chain or another protocol without you knowing. We need to eliminate this double spending or sometimes even triple spending in order to ensure that the maximum impact is actually reached. That's one of the problems that exists with the markets today. I know there's greenwashing and, and so, of course, all this mistrust makes people go like, well, why should I do it? Like many people, towards the end of last year, I fell down the Web3 rabbit hole. Now, some of you are probably nodding your heads, and some of you might even be rolling your eyes. But whichever camp you are currently in, I believe that the evolution of the web is something we can't ignore. So for that reason, I will be talking to a couple of women working in this space over the next few months. Beyond the noise, Web3 is giving us the technology to redesign some of the systems in our world in a way that is more equitable. And it is crucial that women are a part of this redesign. So, how can we use Web3 to build better? How can we create more value for the communities who need it the most? If financial transactions are decentralized, transparent, and publicly verifiable, will they be fairer? This is the big promise behind regenerative finance, or refi. How do we use financial instruments to solve some of the problems our current systems have created? Problems like gaping inequality or climate change. Today's guest, Brie Yek, is the co-founder of CarbonFi, a Web3 company that is trying to incentivize businesses to offset their emissions by making it easier for them to measure their emissions, rewarding them for offsetting these, and making the entire process more transparent. Brie walks me through some of the Web3 jargon, explains some of the barriers currently facing carbon markets, and talks about the importance of making it easy for all of us to do more good. But to begin with, we talk about how she got into Web3 in the first place. Well, it's quite funny. So like thinking back now, it all makes sense why I'm in this space. But um, in 2009, when I started in as a paralegal, actually, I started also volunteering in my free time with, you know, just beach cleanups and things like that. And then I tried to work with some authorities on volunteerism. Um, back then, I think even, I mean, even in the space of the last year, I would say things have changed very rapidly. I think a lot of people were just like, this is kind of like nice to have, to have a clean environment, but it's not necessary. So things were very different then. I volunteered a lot. And then I, I think over time, you sort of get a little bit set back, I would say. But I still actually went on for quite a while, even when I changed jobs into trading oil and gas. And I think that's when I kind of joined the dark side. And I was much more incentivized to actually do more because obviously like trading oil as a oil is a fossil fuel and, you know, it's, it's not great for you know our reliance on them. And I think, again, the crisis in Russia and Ukraine has shown us that the reliance on fossil fuels does impact you a lot more than you think. It's not just the environment. If you don't do anything about it for the environment, at least do something about it for yourself, right? Um, so I think altogether, I was maybe 10 years now, 10 years? No, it's 2022. So it's it's been maybe 11, 12 years now that I've been working with like environmental um, activism, I guess, or volunteerism. Um, and so when I entered um, Antler, which is our incubator program, um, it had been already two years that I knew I wanted to do something solid in, in sustainability. Taking the volunteerism experience, taking my legal training, taking my commodities training, um, I just basically entered Antler with the mindset that, uh, you know, we would use all this for to build something because, you know, it involves all sort of skill sets. And I knew going in that I was looking for someone in blockchain because I had been working on a small seed of an idea that had to do with a decentralized framework. And it has had nothing to do with blockchain back then when it started. But then as you work through the processes and the logic of it, you realize it has to be basically like a Kickstarter for the environment. So I went into looking for a co-founder who had blockchain experience and I found the first of my co-founders from the program. And I think that's how I ended up in this space. I think 
we, at least both of us, the first two of us knew when we went into the program that we didn't want to do anything else but sustainability stuff. Like a lot, there are e-commerce and then there's like other things that make people's lives better, of course, in their own ways. But we both knew, I think, that the thing that makes us get up in the morning and suffer, <laughs> no, but the, thing, the things that we get up in the morning and are grateful for to do is sustainability. And I think that's basically whatever my background was or would have been at that point in time, that was the only thing that I knew that I was going to do. And I think that's what drives uh, or what drove um, the creation of, the, of Carbon Phi. I like to ask the question of what gets you angry? What triggers you? That is your purpose. That's your passion. I think um, I think at some point I was just like, first of all, I didn't want to work for a corporate because, you know, your impact is limited. Whatever you do, sure, nice salary, sure, that's important. But also you want to be able to serve a bigger purpose in life than just earning a paycheck, right? I think that plus my interest and passion for sustainability basically drove me into the startup space. I mean, because you could say that if you wanted to work in sustainability, why didn't you just get hired, you know, by the UN or any such company? But yeah, I mean, they have, we all have the, our roles to play, I would say. A lot of these organizations and centralized bodies are and will and have to take their, their, their roles on stage when it comes to climate change. Um, but then I feel like as a, as a founder, um, then we can create impact from the ground up. Right. So tell me more about how you are doing that. What is Carbon Phi? What are your goals? And and what are the problems that you're trying to solve? We are basically trying to fix um, what we call the public goods space with Web3 um, or basically a technical or technological infrastructure that will support the processes that will help to fund what we call the unbanked, the ones who fall through the cracks, the ones who have less visibility and so on. Um, I am one of three uh, in a team that is funded by Antler. Um, we've called ourselves Carbon Phi. Um, the O in carbon is zero because we stand for the carbon net zero world. Um, the whole idea behind our founding is that we wanted to create an incentive system for people to actually do more good things. So, um, and I'm going to use this as a simple day-to-day example, right? Uh, if you go and buy bubble tea, for example, um, you get a plastic cup. And let's say we assume that all plastic is bad for the environment. And in a lot of cases, it is. Um, you decide to not do that, right? So instead of paying the $5 for the disposable cup with the drink, you decide to get a reusable silicone cup. I have a few of these. It's a Stojo. So it cost me about $30. And that's about six cups of bubble tea, right? $30 for one cup? One reusable yeah, silicone is. cup? Okay. Yeah, that's right. So you have to bring it to the bubble tea shop. You got to wash it. And then you have to bring it back. So this whole process, right, it, it doesn't really encourage people to move away from things that are bad from the environment. Because you have to bear the burden of doing the extra effort, paying the extra money actually be more environmentally friendly. But that's that's why we need to fix it because we do need more people to do such actions. And the easiest way to do it is to actually make sure that people get rewarded in a way that is useful for their lives as well. Um, in, in this particular example, uh, the incentive framework that we've built as part of Carbon Fire is meant to address this um, from a corporate perspective. So when companies are actually uh, looking at satisfying their requirements to their multinational company requirements for, for ESG, which is environmental, social, and governance protocols, a lot of them struggle with it because small companies have fewer resources and they don't really have the opportunity to spend thousands and thousands of dollars, which is what a lot of corporates, the bigger corporates do, to get an audit, which takes time. And in that time, not only do, does it impact their bottom line, it also impacts their day-to-day operations. So our solution that we are launching um, in Q3 um, for, uh, I would say, what we call the real-world corporates, or rather like the non, non-blockchain, non-technical worlds, your normal world, um, will include a lot of features that aim to actually take away these friction points for the companies. So first of all, of course, the first friction point is even having to volunteer that data to understand what does your carbon consumption look like? What does your footprint look like? So one of the features that we're going to have in the app is to actually um, give companies very open source and some private data based 
information or picture of their carbon footprint so they don't have to enter that information in themselves. And along the way, if they want to, they can always volunteer more data if they feel like, you know, that will change the scoring. So once that's done, then they would be able to have two options here. So most companies today, and there are a lot of options out there, I will, I will always say that, you know, we just want to be an option for people who want to do this, would be to retire a carbon footprint straight up, right? Um, our solution would provide um, the carbon, like high quality carbon credits. They're all credited by international third parties and they could retire these credits and then show a digital footprint or a digital trace or the trail, so to speak, um, of what they're doing and also receive like a certification that says, you know, you've offset this much of your footprint. The second option, which is the more incentivizing option, is you can choose to uh, leverage your company's assets, um, whatever you set aside for this, um, or to even dedicate some assets to actually participate in investing in these carbon offsets. So these are coming from projects that produce carbon offsets. So you would be contributing to their growth and development. And these projects have to be very small to medium-sized ones as well. And at the same time, uh, you can choose to, in the end of it, retire those carbon offsets anyway. So you could cover your own footprint. But what, because of the investment structure, you would actually then be able to receive um, returns on it. So it's less of a negative sum game in that sense. So if I were a small company and let's say I set aside $10,000 or $50,000, um, instead of just straight up buying the carbon offsets and retiring them right away, I can actually hand it to the platform, which is us, CarbonFi, will actually then um, return you uh, a yield for those assets that you are you know, give lending to us, and then we would actually then reward you with the carbon offsets as well in the process. So it depends how long you're going to leverage that ten thousand or fifty thousand for. So that's what we want for everyone to be able to do is that um, in this whole process, sure, can you accomplish it without blockchain? Sure, but I think um, the the way that information is then tracked and traced uh, and easily openly. Trace, uh, trackable is very important because if let's say a company says we've offset 10,000 tons, I mean, you have to believe what they say and sure they can show some certificate. But here with our solution, you can actually go online to say Etherscan or any of the other checkers and actually see the audit trail of what they're offsetting. And you can actually trace it back through the metadata all the way down to the projects that they've contributed towards. So you can verify it, basically. Yes, a third party exactly. can check it and verify. Can I just rewind a little bit through what you said, um, particularly for listeners who maybe haven't bought cryptocurrencies before? Um, just explain how this works. So when I go into CarbonFi and I want to uh, invest in carbon assets in addition to purchasing offsets, what is that experience like? Right, so... For our so we we have a solution that's currently running that's only for the use of people who already hold crypto, right? Um, because it's blockchain. So before I go into that, blockchain is a way of distributing data collection or data storage, distributed ledger technology. Uh, crypto is something that is based off blockchain. So the solution is based on blockchain, and the reason why there's crypto is because we do have a governance token that allows the holders to actually decide on some certain decisions within um, our product. Mm -hmm. But the reason why I mentioned the real world app is because if you don't have crypto today, you can still participate. Okay. I, I, I we we personally believe that um, you don't need to know what blockchain is or a whole crypto in order to benefit from the things that crypto and blockchain can give. And I think um, that's where I think we talk about DeFi, which is decentralized financing. Um, decentralized financing basically cr uh, creates a non-central framework um, for people to be able to contribute to things, right? To store data, to have big data validated by many rather than one, um, which yeah. is what central authority does. And um, DeFi is... We call people who are in DeFi degens because it's degenerative financing, right? The idea is to actually, um, for the most part in DeFi, to actually maximize your own um, benefits. So that's why they call it degenerative finance because it doesn't give back. Um, I think in the space that we work in today, we are known as refi, which is regenerative financing. Um, it's now become a thing. I think definitely within the last two to three months, 
um, mainly, I think, in, in the Western Hemisphere, I'll say Europe and U.S. definitely much more ahead of this than 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 you know our region is. But it's it's starting to spread. Uh, I think you know COVID and and you know all the climate change stuff has has really forced this into being, and people see the necessity of it. Um, the difference between ReFi and DeFi is that we still get benefits, of course, right? Like our solution does provide you rewards, but at the same time, it also accomplishes benefits for a larger audience outside of yourself. It contributes to the regrowth of communities. So ReFi or public goods, um, public goods funding um, could be things like, you know, um, how do how do women get access to income? Or it could be a public good like, oh, how do you make sure that um, orphans actually get the right funding? Or uh, basically any kind of underserved project or community would be ideal to be put into refi. So it's regenerative for the society, it's regenerative for the environment, it's regenerative for governments as well. So are those specifically the kinds of projects that you're looking to invest in? Uh, on on your platform, ones with social good as well as climate good and environmental good. Um, so our projects, we we have quite a variety. Um, we try to, of course, um, select as much as possible projects that also have a wider effect than just on the environment, right? So, say for example, right. um, we decide that we onboard a project that is scooping plastic out of the ocean, um, and because maybe they've made a decision to hire mostly women as well. And then they have some additional benefits to the whole accreditation that they have. And so we try to find such projects or say, for example, um, we, we, we take a rice farming project, right? And the way that it works, because we end up automating some of what they do or the project themselves have some processes in place for automating what they do. And with the financing that, we, uh, that comes out from our platform, um, they can actually say return more to their own community. So while they may not employ women, for example, but you can then uplift some of them out of poverty. So generally anything that falls under the 17 uh, SDGs, Social Development Goals of the UN, would qualify as a public goods or a project that we would look at. I think primarily for the first part and, and also because um, there needs to be a lot more work done by external parties on frameworks for assessing such projects. We mostly just focus on the environment part. The social is a nice to have, and it's much harder to say, okay, let's fund a, a project that is just social and just governance, um, because right now we don't have any idea how to even quantify that. So let's say you fund a project that only serves to teach education to women of a certain village so that they can at least get basic work. How do you quantify and track like the entire life cycle of that project? You need to follow these women from the point they are in contact with that education platform all the way to the end. And you have to track their, their average means. Does it improve their quality of life? And all these sort of tracking, monitoring, reporting of that, that tracking and validating that, that reports, those reports are what we call Web3. So the end-to-end -end solution is having a platform to store um, and having devices to monitor people in place, processes in place to monitor it, that is Web3. I mean, think about it like um, a chain of different solutions that basically would provide a lot of um, authenticity in terms of the data, um, but also transparency of the data. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I hadn't considered, you know, when I think about when I think about what recording transactions on the blockchain enables, I have been thinking about it very much from the perspective of ownership, right? So transactions where you need to verify ownership uh, of a product or ownership of an asset. But looking at it that way in terms of recording transactions so that you can monitor impact and impact mm -hmm. over a lifetime and measure success of a, of a project, I think that's really fascinating because that really has the potential to completely trans transform, hopefully, the amount of money that we can get into some of these projects because it becomes very clear what people exactly. are investing in. Yes, exactly. And I think that when you have trust in that your, say, your dollars or your effort is actually reaching its intended audience and having the actual impact, then I think it would also encourage and naturally incentivize more people to do it and hopefully clear up some of the mistrust. Um, I think on a larger scale, for our project, because we are putting the data on chain um, to actually integrate someday with other people doing the same in different markets on different 
protocols. Um, the idea is that one day we actually hope to solve the mistrust that now exists in the carbon trading markets. Right? You need to be able to know that, let's say if you buy a carbon offset from this project today, you, when you retire it, it's not going to be retired again by someone else on another chain um, or another protocol uh, without you knowing. That's the idea. We need to eliminate this double spending or sometimes even triple spending in order to ensure that the maximum impact is actually reached so it's not undermined. I think that's one of the problems that exists with the markets today. You know, there's greenwashing. And, and so, of course, all this mistrust makes people go like, well, why should I do it? I mean, if I plant this tree or, you know, the, you, you go into a website, it says, we'll plant a tree for every whatever, whatever you buy. Um, how do you know the tree is actually planted? <laughs> yeah. How do, you, how do you know it's actually there? How, how do you actually measure that? Let's say if the tree is supposed to cover the carbon footprint of whatever you're purchasing. Yeah. Um, does it actually do that? How do you monitor and report that? And I mean, it, it, nowadays, you know, a lot of this is being done by satellite imagery. It could be done by sensors that they plant in these lands. So we have at least some way of being able to say, okay, when we say that you bought this carbon offset and it represents one tree somewhere, we can actually check that it exists and you can see it. That's your tree. But it's your tree. No one else has bought the same tree. And when you're when you're choosing uh, the projects that you are going to make available on your platform, uh, what are you looking for? Are you working with any standards authorities, like Vera, for example, to make sure mm -hmm. that these are um, legitimate offsetting schemes? So that's a really good question. Um, we've actually chosen to work with Vera, indeed, mm -hmm. and also Gold Standard. Um, what I really love is that they have, well, first of all, they're internationally recognized third parties. Um, they have a wide range of projects and also a very wide range of methodologies to quantify and certify projects. And Gold Standard especially has methodology in place for a lot of projects that have the additional um, benefits that I mentioned, you know. So if a project is a nature-based solution, like it's a planting tree thing, it could also have the effect of um, uplifting the social part of the community when of the surrounding um, land area that this is happening in because they hire women. So gold standard ratings are quite high in value. Yeah. And a lot of what they work in is in underserved remote communities, which really need the extra visibility, but also um, it's, it's, it's actually not that common to be able to actually get gold standard. So okay. the, the projects that we want are, there are different levels. We have a few different tiers. Obviously we have like ones that are super rare, uh, what we call them legendary in gaming terms, <laughs> legendary ones, and then like rare ones. And then like the more common ones would be, for example, if you're supplying, uh, you know, biomass uh, fuel on cook stoves to a community or a village in Myanmar, instead of, you know, I think some of the communities, say, for example, I think in Africa, if I'm not wrong, they used to burn plastic parts and electrical components to actually fire their stoves because they just get whatever they can burn. Obviously, it's good for their health as well. So that, that particular project, because it fixes a, a energy issue, which is an environmental thing, and then it also fixes the health of the community, it gets additional ratings for that. Okay, right. Yeah. So I think it's very clear what the problem is that CarbonFi mm -hmm. solves and, and also how it can bring in businesses and more individuals into offsetting and also offsetting responsibly mm -hmm. and transparently. But from a business perspective, what are some of your goals then for CarbonFi? Where do you hope that it's going to be in the next 10 years? Mm. So maybe I will break that down into two things. One, which is CarbonFi as a product, and then one, the team. Um, okay. Maybe we talk about uh, very briefly about the product. So I don't know what it will evolve to. I have kind of an idea of what we wanted to accomplish. We, we would like one day to have Carbon Fire as a product integrated with all other projects in the similar space as us. Like I said, you know, we need to integrate to or in order to ensure that there's no double accounting, double uh, triplicate accounting. Um, but we also hope that it would become a solution for, for businesses uh, as well as at the end of the day, B two B to C, yeah, um, for consumers to actually be able to, and, and this is another sustainable angle as well, to be able to live their daily lives in a way that doesn't take away from the from the planet too much. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea behind carbon net zero is not about 
returning Earth to its normalcy. You can't do that. I mean, we're not going to wipe humanity out. So how do you then go about your daily lives in a way that is more sustainable? What in, whatever you're taking, how do you give back a little bit, if not in equal amounts, so that the whole world can then continue on as they're doing and still survive, right? So that's that's what we hope Carbon Fire will become, just a daily choice, a daily solution for you to participate in and use to actually lead that lifestyle that you already have without changing too much about it. And hopefully maybe deciding to make incremental changes to some areas of a life, um, which is outside of the platform, depending on what suits you. Yeah. Um, and then for Carbon Fire as a team, I think all of us believe very much that this is what inspires us. So we talked about it from time to time. We don't know where the product will go, but we are very sure that we want to continue doing this for at least the next five to seven years. Whatever we can do to contribute to this space, it's, it's not even so much to, because we know we need to control things around that space, but more so of we genuinely believe that we have something to give for that space. So yeah. we hope that we have the opportunity to continue working in either, you know, the refi or um, I would say the ESG space for many, many years to come. Sure. There's some point, of course, we have to talk about the profit for the company. Right? The company needs <laughs> yeah. to survive too. But I mean, it needs to be a balance. Um, and, and we always say, you know, it's actually trying to make sure that the planet, the purpose, the profit part all aligns. Yeah. So for, for those listeners who are new to Web3, who are also working in the impact space and are interested in opportunities that Web3 could create for value creation, um, particularly in mm-hmm. sectors that are that have been traditionally underbanked. I mean, you, you touched on that earlier. Um, mm-hmm. How can they do this? Uh, how can they get involved with projects like yours or potentially use NFTs for funding? What are you seeing in the space that's working? What are you seeing in the space that's not working? Mm, so that's a very interesting question. I think a lot of communities will benefit, but then we have to also remember that at the end of the day, technology is just a tool. Yeah. Right? We, there's a lot of work to be done around organizing people, putting in place processes to make sure that everything works in a clean line. Mm-hmm. Um, that means, for example, that the projects we work with, we try as much as possible. They need to at least have some basic uh, processes and tech in place. You know, like, sure, they can be working off Excel spreadsheets, but they still need some kind of like an organization to it. Um, that's one. And then basically... For communities that are also unbanked, they need access to, say, at least a phone or internet to be able to participate um, in this Web3 space. I think um, that's something that I think people get too excited about. They're like, oh my God, this tech will solve all the world's problems. Um, no, I think it's it's a complement. Um, the tech will complement human processes. So there's a lot of work to be done in that space. I think, um, of course, on the NFT side of things, which is purely like, as, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have seen, what is the hype around NFTs? Um, I, I generally feel like it does have, uh, is given a lot of like underserved communities outside of the ESG space, like artists, musicians, a way to create and reward their communities, which is great. Because, you know, when we talk about these things, at the end of the day, it's still a people thing because it's a community thing. Um, it's been great for them to uh, have a lot of visibility and have recourse for them if they don't get paid, if they don't get their royalties. Um, it's given their audience a way to feel more connected with them. And I think it's been great. I think yeah. in terms of like what, what we're not sure will work or not, is the projects that... We are very keen on supporting. So like, you know, if you are, like I said, the quantification is an issue. If let's say you are actually setting up something to have education for women or kids in the village, how do we go about doing that? Would people be interested in that? Because I think people like the feel-good nature of it, but would you pay for it? How much would you pay for it? Yeah. How much would you pay to feel good about it? I think that's the real question that, you know, um, that, that lingers on no matter what kind of technology we apply is that how how do you tell people to, or how do you get people to do good for the sake of doing good? There is still a monetary value to doing good. And that's more philosophical than really tech or anything related. So that's what we have to figure out. How do we reward people for doing it? Um, And of course, like at the end of the day, um, people want to be rewarded. You only get good behavioral change if you reinforce positively the behavior that you want to see. Yeah. I think what I find interesting is that it makes me look at economies differently. 
uh, how do you make the incentive money plus, money plus utility or, or money plus something else? Yeah. Um, so you were recently at ETH Amsterdam and also DevConnect. Yeah. And I was just wondering if you have anything interesting to share from there, particularly in the public goods space. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. The tech conference um, was very exciting. I mean, I've been back now four days. I still feel like the total energy of the space that, you know, um, around the, uh, I would say the projects like mine, uh, like Carbon Phi, which are looking to regenerate rather than degenerate. Um, I think generally leaving aside all the other technical aspects of the conference, which we're talking about, just pure technical upgrades to existing technology and so on, existing protocols, platforms, um, there was definitely uh, like a full day conference which focused only on the climate and on public goods. And what's what's the most interesting takeaway, and I will say this with no aspersions on Web2 people, Web2 refers <laughs> to the rest of the world that is not in the Web3 space. I think the Web3 space people are very openly collaborative versus like Web2 people, I would say. Um, I think that was very refreshing. And it was important as well because coming to the conference, we, we did need to have dialogues to ensure that, you know, we're not going to all be trying to duplicate what each other is trying to do necessarily because we should um, complement each other's strengths as projects in the space. Um, and I think what is also a good takeaway is the amount of conversation around public goods, you know. 10 years ago, I, at least in my experience, if you said, oh, yeah, it will be good to do good for this community, to uplift them or to do something good for the environment. And I've mentioned this before. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, it's a nice to have. But at the conference, it's now a must. It is something that is a biological and ethical imperative now to do it. And that conversations, the amount of conversations happening in that space was amazing. Like, yeah, I, I don't even know how to put it into words. Um, hopefully those takeaways were a good idea into how that entire conference impacted, um, I, I would say, like my energy when it comes to our project. Um, and you can definitely see that people are very, very driven to do better. And I think that's also very nice. Um, I think in, in the tech space as well, uh, there will be a lot more changes. Everyone uh, as a corporate the tech companies are trying to do better. Um, there is a tech for good movement, leveraging technology for, for improvement. And I think that's also something that I think we will see more of down the road. Um, when huge institutions in the tech world, like the Ethereum Foundation, which this uh, conference was actually uh, organized by uh, and overseen by, um, Ethereum themselves you know, are like, we need to do good. So they are necessary in stepping up the game for changing the world. And I think we will see more such companies doing the same thing. So I'm very excited. Oh, it's so positive to hear that and, and very hopeful that the Web3 community is very collaborative and, and people are listening first and open to discussing how, how things might be improved and built better. And I guess with that in mind, I wanted to ask how ReFi in general, and maybe CarbonFi in particular, are addressing some of the structural issues around the financial sector, which has led to the situation that we currently have where many people and projects are underbanked or unable to access finance. Yeah, I think it's 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 about removing friction points and barriers, right? Like when we talk about, let's say if you're a very small project and you go to a centralized authority like the bank to actually get a loan for your farming project or whatever, you, it's very hard because there's so many hurdles to cross. Your, your your legal documents, you know, you have to go through all that and then they will be like, oh, well, you know, you haven't had enough credit history or you don't have enough valuable assets for us to get the kind of return that the bank wants. And instead of doing that now, what Carbonify can do today is that we are for here for you. I mean, sure, we, as we said, we need to balance the profit part of the whole enterprise so that we can actually uh, survive as well. It, that's part of sustainability, and we are built on ESG principles as well as a business. Um, but we don't have that same capital-only uh, prerogative that centralized authorities have, and I think that's what's a little bit more game-changing. There are less hurdles or lower hurdles or different hurdles, I would say, to cross. 
um, that hopefully, though, it will be much easier for them to cross those and get to where they need to go. And that's what we want to do. I think that's what DeFi in general sought to do in the first place. But ReFi is a much better version of that. Um, it's about getting barriers out of the way for things that will contribute positively uh, as part of an entire network rather than just one single entity, which is what centralized authorities are about. I think that's what's game changing. I think I think a lot of it is actually also like driven by the fact that before Carbon Fi, I was actually experimenting with another project in sustainability, which related very much to plastic recycling, and which is why I can speak a lot more about that than others. Um, it, it was actually building a hardware to recycle or clean plastic, so that the the waste plastic is actually cleaner and purer when you actually take it to recycle, which affects your uh, yield in that sense. It affects what else you can do with the plastic after. Um, and, and actually being in that project made me understand all the pain points that small projects face, that small corporates face. Um, and that's why I think we are so driven to actually build this platform or build Carbon Fi to be something that removes these friction points and these barriers for same or similar projects. So given that, given that the gatekeeper essentially is you, are there any concerns, like regulatory concerns, that you might have? Because while I understand the benefits of it when it means that you can fund projects that might not otherwise receive funding, it can also be a risk, right? I mean, not not casting aspersions on carbon fi, but but for potential bad actors in the DeFi space, do you think some amount of regulation is necessary? Oh, absolutely. So I mentioned earlier that regulatory authorities are cracking down on it. I think, and, and I think a lot of it is for a good cause in the sense that we still need certain controls in place, right? You want to make sure that this project actually exists, for example, and it doesn't just become like what we call in crypto a rug pool, a scam. Um, so there needs still to be like basic what we call KYC, like know your client or know your customer processes. We still need legal entities. We still need registration. Um, and we still need some way to ensure that if bad things happen, there's recourse. I would say like in terms of the regulatory space currently, I think that's what they're trying to address. They want to be able to grow this industry healthily because they see the benefits it could bring. But in a way that's not going to end up like a, a bubble where you have a lot of bad actors and people, um, innocent people especially, get taken advantage of. Um Oh, yeah, there are. I mean, Singapore itself, where I'm calling in from, has already begun uh, putting in place a lot of regulations they started working on years ago. Um, so we are we are a very, very, I would say, law abiding company. And also, again, with ESG principles in place, it, it behooves us to actually be ethical about how we do things. So we are all legitimately set up. We've gone through KYC ourselves. Um, we are expecting at some point to probably have to work alongside centralized authorities like you know either the monetary authorities or other like financial service authorities um so we are prepared and we want them to actually come to the table to, to, to chat with us to collaborate with us yeah i think that's the part of the space that really excites me um, because it's new, there's this opportunity for, for nonprofits and social impact businesses, but also for for-profit businesses and government to, to collaborate in the design um, of these systems in a really meaningful way so that maybe everybody on the value chain can benefit or at least benefit in a more proportionate way than we've been witnessing recently. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully... And maybe I'm a little bit of an idealist or some might say naively optimistic that most people want to do good and they want to live in a world that is essentially good. And I do think genuinely there's more altruism in the world than we think, but it's it's certainly spurred on faster when you can incentivize it like you guys are doing. Um, but I also wanted to ask, you know, as a female CEO of a Web3 business, what is important to you and how this new space is created? Because it's still early days. Um, there's still a lot of infrastructure that, you know, as you've already mentioned, there's still a lot of infrastructure in the Web3 space that needs to be built. So given that you are starting CarbonFi in the early stages of this evolution, and you are a woman, and you are the CEO driving this change, what is important to you in what you build and how the Web3 ecosystem develops? 
Web3 changes really fast. So we need to be yeah. very flexible, adapt. We always need to be kept abreast of changes. And I liked what another female founder uh, said. Uh, another, uh, she works also in, like uh, I would say, a community platform that assists like women. Um, mm-hmm. She said, if you want to get shit done, you hire a mom. Because <laughs> if you think about it, um, while there are a lot of traditional families like that, I mean, there are a lot of traditional families where mom still does a lot, yes. And I also acknowledge that families are changing. There are some dads that are stepping up more. But generally, women still do, for the large part, most of the work in a family unit whether it's a traditional family unit or not. We are the ones who are usually the ones cleaning. We are usually the ones multitasking. I can't multitask, by the way. I can't at all. What is different is that women are very flexible and adaptable generally. Um, I think, of course, I mean, there are a lot of, I would say, capacity for change in people and humanity. Like you said, you know, there is a want and a drive to do good, to change. Um, but more importantly, I think women tend to, be very flexible. I think I can only speak for myself and some of the women that I've met because of the environment that we've grown up in, having to, in a lot of times, do much more than than males, I would say, in order to achieve the same effect. We've had a lot of odds stacked against us. And one of those is definitely, I often get this, I will tell people I can't multitask, like I can't walk and talk and then reply you at the same time texting. I can't do it. And I generally do get in a very like non-ill-intentioned way, oh, I thought women are supposed to be better at multitasking, right? I, I, I don't care what I'm supposed to be. <laughs> I, I, think that, <laughs> I think that if there is something that needs to be done, like a task that needs to be done, then we step up. And, and that's pretty much it. it it's, so I think that that makes us, at least in, from my point of view, it's a critical thing to have, uh, being adaptable, being able to see from multiple points of view and, and then tie it together uh, in the Web3 space um, at the speed that is happening, especially, it is overwhelming. I, I do wish I could multitask only in the sense that I wish I could be able to like process information from news and, you know, from conversations happening in that space a lot more than I currently can. And that's about, I think, all that I would want out of multitasking. Just generally being in Web3 as well, there is the same collaborative spirit that exists. Um, it's also actually very good and inc- more inclusive of women. I definitely see more women stepping in and owning their space in Web3. Although obviously at a conference, because it is a development conference, developer conference, it's called Dev Connect for a reason. It's mostly still males in that space. Um, and we've had very interesting conversations where uh, in at certain like female focused events during the conference that were organized independently about how difficult it is to find and develop females um, in that field. And, and a lot of companies, um, they, they, they too try to hire females. And of course, the females themselves then become um, the drivers for hiring or being more inclusive in general, not just women um, in that company. But there is a definite dearth of talent in that space. Um, we're not sure why. I think, I think there are more now than there was before. Um, so it, it should change. And I think a lot of, for years now, a lot of countries and a lot of institutions have been trying to drive the STEM uh, region. So like the science, the technical stuff, uh, roles and education for women. So it's starting to have some effect, but we still have a long way to go. And so like being what with Web3 and all, being the, with the open collaborative spirit that it has, we hope that actually that accelerates the pace of that change. Because I think, I don't, I don't necessarily feel like we need to always be equal. I don't think equality is the goal. I think parity is the purpose. Yes. So we want to be able to access that talent pool that is not restricted to just one gender. We're, we're missing out on, what, 51% of the world. There's the, all that talent there that hasn't yet been explored. And if not Web3 to, to take advantage of that, then, then when? So within your own team, for example, how are you... Um, how are you trying to to build a more diverse team in CarbonFi? Is that one of your goals at all? And I don't mean just diversity yes. from a gender perspective, from a worldview perspective or culture, race. So my two co-founders are male, I guess. So I'm already less than 50% of the team is female. Um, but we, we, did hire, uh, we did hire someone who is female um, to assist me with what I have to do. When we imagine the company, I would like to be all inclusive. It's not just about women. I don't see why I couldn't hire someone who has a special skill set in some way and might not have some other skill sets in other ways. Let's just put it that way. They're more able in some areas than others. 
So yeah, I would like to. And I've spoken actually to other people in the space where they're in a position to hire, how do they build this environment, right? And I think I've told my co-founders this as well. Inclusivity includes them, meaning that I want the way that we've had the project set up, we all need to be happy humans in order to make other people happy, right? You have to fill your own cup first before you can fill other people's cups. So if that means that, you know, you have plans to further your studies or if you want to set up a family later or to do to pursue other interests outside of this space, but you need our support within the team, please let's communicate. Let's try to make sure that we can all achieve our personal goals as well. And, and if nothing else, you know, COVID has taught us that actually some people are much better or much more productive if you allow them to have that space to tend to their personal stuff. It's, it's about solving the little things, right, so that you can solve the bigger things. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Um, yeah. I think that, yeah, just making it easier for people to, to do their jobs well, for anyone to do their jobs well. Yeah. So... Given how quickly Web3 is evolving, and if we were to have this conversation in a week's time, I'm sure it would be a completely different one just because of the way the space is evolving. But what is it about Web3 now that gives you the most hope? Um, this is a complicated question, I think. Um, when, when we look at uh, the... One of the key criteria that when we talk about Web3 is that there obviously is all these technologies, equipment, hardware being built. What happens to them at the end of the day, right? So in order to enable this Web3 connectivity, we need to deploy, we need to create, we need to manufacture, we need to consume. So that's something that I think everyone is trying to figure out, I I would say. How do we do it in a way that, you know, doesn't destroy the planet, I love talking about this today, actually. The balance thing is so relevant because it's 4th of May, by the way. Happy Star Wars Day. And I and I love Star Wars, and I think it's all about the balance, right? Getting that balance in Web3 where it's, you know, so many aspects of it. Inclusivity, um, carbon footprint, collaboration, um, how do you use it as a force for good? You know, it's all going to be discussed endlessly down the road. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm very positive about what Web3 can do. And I hope that the right stakeholders will drive uh, the adoption. Yeah, I think that is hopeful. And it does seem that if we're now in the position that we're at the start of a huge opportunity in evolving the shape of the web, um, let's do it in a way that does more good for more people. So what's one thing that you know now that you wish you knew five years ago? That's a good question. What did I wish I knew five years ago? I think... I will just speak for myself as a personal experience side of things. I think that's where I've seen the most growth in myself. Mm. Well, change. I don't know about growth. Hopefully that was growth. <laughs> but I think five years ago, I, I wish that, you know, the older me now can go back and be like, you've got this. You can do this. And I just wish that um, someone, I mean, there are and there have been and there will be a lot of people outside of myself who will say this to me. But I think you, you, you're, you need to be careful about what you tell yourself. And that's yeah. something that I wish I knew earlier. I think because that affects your your professional life, what you choose to do, your purpose, and discovering that purpose. I think it's part of that journey to, you know, what you tell yourself is necessary to discovering your true purpose. I think five years ago, I wish that someone, or I wish that I knew that, for example, that it's possible for me to actually do what I'm doing today. Again, very grateful that I am because considering like my background, um, personal background, I think five years ago, I was just like, I can't see this happening at all. Um, But now it's happening. So it's fine. I think five years ago also, I also wish that these conversations about climate change started. I mean, I I honestly think that these conversations and what is happening now in regenerative financing had taken place 10 years earlier. Of course, I wish Um, that would have been nice. Um, Mm. But we can't. We can't yet time travel. Yeah. Um, well, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, just hint, hint, if you guys ever want to, to, to like focus your energies and resources on that, it would be nice to turn back the clock <laughs> and then start all this earlier, um, or if they're listening. Um, but, you know, we, we have to move forward. Yeah, I really like that. I agree. The way you talk to yourself is so important in terms of what you're able to create and what you're able to impact in the future. And I also think the fact that you said we can't time travel yet 
shows me that you are an eternal optimist who believes that anything is possible if you put enough resources, energy, and and attention oh, into it. <laughs> and uh, we need we need more people in the world who have that kind of mindset. Yeah, I think I think while you might say just now that you were naively optimistic, I don't think that's the case. I think that optimism and like what you do in 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 terms of execution is two different things. You can be powered by optimism, but you can act in a very pragmatic, realistic way. And, and for sure, like I think you, I think I love sci-fi. It's very hard to not feel hopeful about it when you love sci-fi because you always think about possibilities and opportunities. Yeah, people people who wrote science fiction dreamed of things that you know were completely alien. No pun intended. <laughs> uh, completely alien to concepts of anybody who existed in their time. The the fact that they were able to dream it also meant that people dreamt along with them and then executed it. And I think that's why I say optimism and execution is two things that need to go together. There's nothing wrong at all with being optimistic. It's necessary, I think, to to create new things, to invent new things. I mean, just, you know, just on a slightly nerdy note, the laser was never invented. The first concept of the laser was first thought of in Star Trek, and that was in the 70s. But we now have a laser because somebody dreamt that it was it existed. We didn't know how, he didn't know how it might exist, but because he he thought of it, people, scientists actually looked into it and created it. So we have the laser today because of someone who dreamt it. So mm. yeah, optimism is necessary. Dreaming is necessary. I think that's actually a really nice analogy for, for the creation of anything new. You know, someone dreamt of a laser. They weren't sure what it would be used for or what would be the application. And then it was created. An application was created for it. Um, and an application for so many things that we use today, you know, printers, um, passport control at airports. So I think that's, uh, that is a really beautiful analogy for a a lot of what we've been talking about today. Um, so thank you so much, Brie, for your time. Um, really looking forward to hearing more about what's going to come out of CarbonFi and, um, and thank you for being so generous with your time and explaining the work that you're doing and, and, you know, concepts like deregulated finance, regenerated finance, and the implication of recording transactions on the blockchain for noobs like me. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, it was my pleasure. And I, I mean, given a few more weeks, as you said, I would love to see what you think is new coming out as well and see where you go in, in your learning journey in the Web3 space. I love hearing about other people's journeys as well. And I'm very, very grateful that you decided to also allow me this opportunity to share this with your audience and yourself. Telling other people about it also helps me learn. So thank you for that. Thanks everyone for listening and for joining me in this little corner of the Web3 rabbit hole. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, or if you want to talk about Web3 and its implications for you or your business, then join the Purpose Effect group on Facebook and let's talk about it. The link is in the show notes. I've also posted the links to CarbonFi if you want to get involved. And you'll hear from me again next week. Bye.